following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. My name is Mark. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, our lead pastor, Brian, is in Charlotte today preaching at another church. So here I am, and we're going to continue in Acts. So if you would uh, get your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 21. Uh, my voice feels better today, uh, uh, better for this service. Man, I, first service, I sounded like froggy uh, from the Little Rascals. And you can probably hear a little raspiness. Um, yeah, that's, that's the, uh, the daffodils blooming this week, okay? So uh, they just, man, they just, boom, they're there. And uh, yeah, so the allergies have kind of kicked in. Um, I've been, you know, trying to wear a mask just in case, but um, nobody's sitting right here, so that's, <laughs> that's good. All right, Acts chapter 21. Now, uh, we're continuing uh, the story as, as we've been uh, going now for almost a year. And last week, we began really a new section of the book of Acts. So as we finished up last week, Paul was traveling to Jerusalem, even though people said, hey, there's going to be persecution and so on. And he said, okay, I know this, I'm going to go. And the people there, uh, the, the religious leaders and the people were all about laying hands on him. They, wanted, they were accusing him of, of um, teaching against the law and profaning the temple. And a riot was breaking out. And so as we left the story last week, uh, they were beating Paul, beating up on him, and they wanted to kill him. And so the, the uh, leader of the guard, um, the, the tribune, uh, took him into custody, arrested him. He's getting beat up and they arrest him. And um, as they're leading him up the stairs to go into the barracks, Paul then uh, begins to, uh, to talk with him and he wants to talk to the people. And that's where we'll be at today. So we're going to talk today about the power of personal testimony. The power of personal testimony. Paul's going to give us his story. You and I have a story as well. And so we're going to see if we can get some things out of Paul's story to kind of inform our story with Jesus Christ. So it's a longer passage, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. We'll read it in pieces. And uh, let me pray first, and then we'll, then we'll dive in. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these people. I thank you that we can pass the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. And Lord, I pray that we would sense that. I too want to pray for my brothers and sisters in all parts of the world that are seeing hardship and persecution. Lord, we think not only of Ukraine, but our, our brothers and sisters in Tanzania, the many children that this church is sponsoring. We pray that you would uphold them and strengthen them. People in other places who are facing persecution, Lord, we have it so easy here, and yet their faith seems so vibrant. I pray that you would work that in us as well. Be with me, Lord. Sustain me, strengthen my voice, 
Lord, help me um, as I open your word. May we see wonderful things in your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Acts 21, we'll start in verse 37. And this first section is just prelude. Okay, we're just setting things up. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? That seems kind of random, right? Um, But actually, Paul apparently spoke to him in Greek. Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Okay, this is just setting us up. Paul is is being led up the steps. He's been taken into custody. And he requests, in the midst of all of that confusion, the tribune did not know what was happening. He did not know what was going on, we read in the earlier verses. Different people were saying different things, and it was just a confusing setting. And so Paul says to him, in Greek, may I speak to you? And I I just, I I find this whole exchange kind kind of funny. You know, do you know Greek? Aren't you that Egyptian guy? I mean, it's, it's just typical of us that we just, if we don't really know somebody, we make assumptions. But historians tell us about an Egyptian who was trying to stir up the people. He had gathered about 4,000 people to himself. They had laid siege to Jerusalem, praying that God would knock down the walls like he did with Jericho way back in the day. And eventually, uh, the Romans came and and arrested a number of those people. Uh, The the leader, the Egyptian guy, was at loose. And so this tribune thinks, this is that guy. They must have caught him. And then he speaks Greek. Oh, I thought you were that Egyptian guy. I I love Paul's response here. He says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. It's kind of like we would say, I'm from this little town called New York. Ever heard of it? You know, that's no obscure city. Hey, you ever heard of Tarsus? So he asked for permission to speak, and the proconsul gives it to him. Now, Paul is going to tell his story. It is the first of six defenses that Paul makes starting now into the end of the book of Acts. Now this, in in terms of the structure of the book of Acts, we have now entered into a whole new segment where um, the narrative is more about prison and defense of the faith. We've been in a long section where the emphasis has been on, on the missionary journeys. Well, now he's come to Jerusalem He faces opposition, he's arrested, and he's going to make defenses. One commentator points out that there are 97 verses of defense speech, 
which represents 39% of the prison defense section. Compare that to 47 verses of his missionary speech, which is 21% of the missionary section. Now, all that to say that Paul's defense of the faith and defense of himself is equally as important as, his, as is the preaching of the gospel to people who need to hear it. So we read at the very beginning when Luke was writing and saying, Theophilus, I began to write about what Jesus began to do and teach. And now I'm writing this to defend the faith. So Paul is, is going to, to speak to the defense of the way. In this particular case, he's speaking to a, a Jewish audience who's very riled up wants to kill him, thinks he's teaching against the law, thinking that he has profaned the temple, and now he's going to give his defense. So if you're taking notes, this first part, is talk, he'll talk about his past life. We call this his past religious fervor. Paul begins in verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make, to, make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, which was actually probably Aramaic, um, it's, it's kind of literally the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, Paul talks about his, begins with his background. And he expresses a very common triad of his birth, his upbringing, and his education. So first, his birth. He said he was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. And if Ryan will put up on the screen uh, the map, I love that we've had maps. I don't know if you know this, but I, I taught middle school geography for like 10 years because geography is where it's at. <laughs> some, some of you will get that later. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. I see what he did there. Okay, in our map here, uh, this is uh, the second missionary journey, but um, we're going to look particularly on the right-hand side, down at the bottom corner, is Jerusalem. That's where we are now. That's where Paul is now. Um, going straight up from that, up the coast, and just to the left a little bit, you have Tarsus. That was Paul's home city. That's where he was born. So, Paul, that's his Greek name. Uh, Saul was his Hebrew name. 
Paul was born in Tarsus, a Jew, but a citizen of Rome. And that's going to come into play later on as he goes through various trials and, and uh, stands before various leaders. But Paul is a, a Roman citizen. He's not a Palestinian Jew. He's what we would call a Hellenistic Jew. So as the Jews were scattered throughout the world uh, during the various captivities from the Old Testament days, there are Jews all over the place, and he's one of them. So he's born there in Tarsus. Then it says, he says, I was brought up in Jerusalem. That specifically means it was his early life. So at some point early on, he came to Jerusalem. Then when it came time for his formal training, he sat under the feet of Gamaliel. And he was educated according to the strict manner of the law. Because of this, he says, I was zealous for God. Now, these people that he's talking to, they think they are zealous for God. That's why they want to kill him. He was once one of them. But he's zealous for God. And by the way, it's not a false God. It's the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who he was following. And he was zealous for this. Now, later he writes, and if, if you keep your finger here in Acts and turn to Philippians chapter 3, it'll also be on the screen. Paul talks about his past life. And Philippians 3, starting in verse 2, he says this, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the people that want to want to make Jewishness part of becoming a Christian. They wanted to turn Gentile believers into Jews, particularly centered around uh, the, the rite of circumcision. But he says, we, verse 3, we are the circumcision, the true, the spiritual circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the key thing. Paul puts no confidence in his keeping of the law. But he did at one time. Verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is Paul's assessment of his life before Christ. That he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a righteous man. Now, he talked about being educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Do you remember Gamaliel? We saw him before in Acts chapter 5. And if you recall, Peter and John, the new church is growing. Peter and John are in the temple. They're preaching the gospel. And the council arrests them. And they're wanting to kill them. And Gamaliel, who was, who was the top rabbi, he was the, he was the number one guy. 
He was widely regarded as, as the rabbi of rabbis. He speaks up and he says, um, fellas, can we have the room? So they send Peter and John out and he speaks to the council and he says, look, do you all remember a certain guy that came up and said he was something? And he had a following. And then when he was killed, that whole following went away. And then there was another guy that came up and he thought he was something. And he had a following. And when he died, that following drifted away. He said, now here's what we need to do. If this Jesus is just one of those guys, then we don't need to worry about this. This will die of its own accord. But if it's of God, then we can't stop it. Gamaliel was the voice of reason. So they agreed with his advice. I kind of like the irony with it. They agreed with his, his advice, brought Peter and John in and beat them anyway, and then sent them out and said, don't preach anymore. Yeah, that didn't age well because they kept preaching. But Gamaliel is the voice of reason. Gamaliel is, is the one who maybe senses that if this is real, if this thing of the way and Jesus, Jesus Christ is for real, then we need to be careful. But Paul, Saul, he was just a young hothead. Now, one of the things that I think about is why was Paul so filled with invective against the church? Why did he persecute the church so strongly? He says here in our, in our text, I persecuted this way to the death. You remember we were introduced to him as Saul at the end of Acts chapter 7 after Stephen gave his big speech and they stoned him to death. And it says that Saul was there and the men who were doing the stoning laid their coats at the feet of Saul and he was in agreement with Stephen's death. And then, beginning of verse 8, that very day, great persecution broke out against the church. And Saul was there and was part of it. Now, what was behind this? I'm going to use my imagination a little bit, my speculation. So, like Brian often does, I'm going to step here away from the Word of God, and speculate a little bit on this. We are introduced to Saul at the end of Acts chapter 7. Now, scholars tell us that he was born uh, somewhere around 2 AD. Jesus Christ was born about 5 BC. Figure that out. Okay, something to do with Roman emperors and naming months after themselves and stuff. So he ends up Christ is born five years before Christ. Okay. So Paul is younger than Christ, but not by, not by that much. Okay. Do y'all remember Star Wars? Yeah, we're going to go there. Okay. The first Star Wars movie. 
And I'm old enough to have seen it in the theater 10 times. You know, I am that nerd. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the second movie comes out, uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back. I see I'm not that great of a fan. Um, Empire Strikes Back, and we are surprised to see on the screen episode five, and we're like, what is that? Okay, so Empire Strikes Back comes out, and we're introduced to a new character, Lando Calrissian, who's a scoundrel. And we, we get hints that there's a backstory there, because Han Solo is like, he obviously knows Lando, and Lando is like, what'd you do to my ship? And like, we're all like, well, it's, it's Han's ship. There's a backstory there. So different writers have tried to figure out, you know, exactly what has come down with the Millennium Falcon and all that. Okay. Point being, there's a backstory. So we're introduced to Lando, but there's more that comes in the back. So I'm going to speculate a little bit here. Is there a backstory to Saul? Saul says he was raised in Jerusalem, which means he came at a fairly early time in his life, educated under Gamaliel. Gamaliel just didn't pop up either. He'd been there. I think it's entirely possible that Saul was there, at least to some degree. Now, he was younger. I think we get that sense from the fact that they were laying their coats at his feet. Like, he's, he's the intern. Okay, intern, you watch our coats while we, while we stone Stephen. But he's there. And I'm wondering, did he ever see Jesus? Did he ever hear his teaching? Did he ever witness Jesus turning over the tables in the temple? Was he ever on the receiving end of some of Jesus' invective of you Pharisees, you hypocrites? Was Saul in the crowd going, crucify him, away with him? Now, I'm not going to die on this hill, but when I think about how viciously Paul sought to persecute and put to death the people of the way. I wonder if he isn't part of that. Now, another piece to this is in Acts 26, Paul will tell his story again. I don't want to do any spoiler alerts. But at one point in that story, as he's relating it in Acts 26, Jesus says to him, why are you kicking against the goads? I am Jesus. You're persecuting me. Why are you kicking against the goads? Now, a goad was a, a cattle prod. It was used to, to move cattle. You poke, you poke, you poke, you get the cattle moving and so on. And Jesus is saying to him, look, I've been poking you. And you've been resisting. And right now it's going to take a bright light and, and you being knocked blind for me to get your attention. But all this time you've been, you've been resisting. So I really wonder if Saul had not, at least to some degree, 
known who Jesus was, known of Jesus. And a hatred began to develop. Now, back to, I'm not going to die on that hill, but it just seems to make sense to me. If I were writing a movie, I'd put him in the story. Okay. Now, this, this business of him persecuting the church, Paul never forgot that he did that. Even after he was converted, he always recognized, he made it part of his story. I hunted the church down. I hunted the way down. It weighed on him. He never forgot it. Even after his conversion, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, I don't think as he remembers his past life, I don't think he's wallowing in guilt. I think he understands he's forgiven. But I don't think he ever forgot the depth of sin for which he was forgiven. And that's important. As believers, we are pardoned. There is therefore now no condemnation. But we can't just forget the fact that we treated God badly, that we were sinners. And never forget the depth of, of sin that drove Christ to the cross and, the, and the, just the appreciation and the depth of gratitude we have for his work. Okay, so that's his, uh, his past, a religious past. Many of you have a religious past. I have a religious past. I was a good little church boy. And if my mom was still alive, she would probably say I wasn't. But <laughs> um, many of you have that similar story. Some of you, it's a little bit different. But the fact is, we all were in need of a miracle. We were all in need of a, a rebirth. So that takes us to our second point, which is a transformative encounter. A transformative encounter. All right. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. <clears throat> And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Turn too many pages. Now, those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now we're going to see later he met with, with a highly regarded Jewish believer named Ananias. But the focus here 
is on this dialogue between Saul and Jesus. And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Not, I am Jesus, who is well pleased with your self-righteousness. Not, I am Jesus, who is satisfied that you have met all the demands of the gospel. Not, I am Jesus, who is happy with you as a Pharisee and the way you treat people. No, it was, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He had to bring Saul to the point of recognizing his sin before a holy God. Saul understood, as, a, as an expert in the law, he knew of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and bondage. He knew of God's faithfulness to his promises. He knew about God's steadfast love, the hesed that, that God has for his people, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that God has for his people. Paul knew all of that. What he doesn't know is that what he's doing for God is actually sinful. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Like most Pharisees, he missed Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That was the Pharisees. That was Paul. So steeped in the scriptures, but they missed the point. Who are you, Lord? is the crucial question when we encounter God. Who are you, God? I'm not the God that's here to make you live your life to your fullest potential. I'm not the God to give you your best life now. I am the holy God whom you have offended I am the God whose glory you have not honored. I am the God whose holiness you have not revered. I am the God whose truth you have not sought. I am the God whose commandments you have not obeyed. I am the God whose wrath you have not feared. I am the God whose grace you have not cherished. And I am the God whom you have not loved. To encounter God and Jesus Christ is first to encounter the depth of our sin. And whether you are a religious good old church boy or a wayward soul who did all the stuff, 
even the smallest sin, as we would regard sin, is enough to, to offend a holy God. Now, the good news is that the gospel has answered that. The gospel has addressed that problem. God, out of his great love for humanity, sent his son Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to perfectly live the life that we could not live. He kept the law perfectly for his entire life so that we would have the righteousness of God. He took on himself in his death the wrath that was meant for us. He took that wrath in our place so that when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we become the righteousness of God. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we would be the righteousness of God. Praise the Lord. Now, he meets with Ananias. <clears throat> and I'm not going to go through this whole thing um, straight through. But if you look down to verse 16, Ananias has said to Paul, Look, this is what God has planned for you. We'll touch on that in a second. Verse 16, he says, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, we need to be careful here because Ananias is saying that you must be baptized to be saved. Rather, your baptism, as we have always taught, is an outward symbol and a public identification with Jesus Christ. It's an outward symbol of, our, of an inward reality that we have died to sin and have been raised to newness of life. Well, how does that happen? What do we do to make that happen? It comes in the, next, in the last part of this. He says, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, this is not a story of some sort of journey with God. This is a story of a sinner being washed clean by the name of Jesus Christ. It really means wash away your sins by calling on his name. That's shorthand for believe in Christ. Stop trusting in your own goodness. Believe in him. Trust in him. Rely on him alone. Crying out to Jesus as we, as we sing sometimes, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Calling out to Jesus, submitting to his lordship, recognizing that he is the, he's the true God and worthy of my trust. Back in Philippians, if you want to turn there again, uh, chapter 3, Paul goes on after talking about his righteousness under the law. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
And Paul did lose much. It's not like Paul said, well, in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out, I have this righteousness to fall back on. I'm a pretty good guy. No, he says that whole pretty good guy thing, that's garbage. I count it all as, as refuse for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. So that's his transformative encounter. He goes from a self-righteous, perfect under the law, proud, prideful sinner who attacks the church to one who now upholds the way and is about to be persecuted himself. So, we go to the third part. This is point three. After meeting Jesus, after he meets Jesus, it's uh, point number three, a global mission, a global mission. Okay. In verse 14, this is still in his conversation with Ananias. We read, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Paul now that he knows Christ has a mission. And that is to, to spread the gospel to anyone he comes in contact with. Now, one of the phrases Ananias uses here is that it is, he's appointed that you will know his will. Now, I think this is more than just the way we sometimes think about how do you know God's will. Like we, we sometimes wrestle with these things. Should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this girl or that girl? Should I move here or there? And we want to know what God's will is for our life. I think in Paul's case, it runs a little bit deeper. Particularly in the book of Ephesians, he talks about the will of God in Jesus Christ. This is in chapter 1. To unite all things under Christ. That's, that's the will of God in sort of a macro sense. And then later in Ephesians... Paul talks about his ministry that's been given to him to speak the mystery of Christ. And he says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's the will of God, I believe he's talking about there. We see it kind of filled out in Paul's writing. That Jews and Gentiles are one in the gospel. Now, he alludes to this. If we go into the next paragraph, he begins to talk about returning to Jerusalem, praying in the temple. He has a trance. And in the end, the voice, uh, um, the Lord tells him, this is verse 21. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, we have seen 
Peter, primarily being the, the apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, this was always part of God's plan. This wasn't a book of Acts thing. It's not like they said, well, you know, we're getting beat up by the Jews, so let's just go to the Gentiles. Plan B. It was never plan B. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram, says, I will bless you and every family of the earth will be blessed through you. Now we see with the full revelation of God in his word that that blessing of the whole earth is accomplished through Jesus Christ. And now his apostles, as, we, as we're studying here in the book of Acts, they're taking the message everywhere. As we say, to the ends of the earth. And that's why you are here today. It's why I am here today. Because this global mission was carried out by faithful servants of God for 2,000 years. And so from the very beginning, God intended that the blessings of, of his redemptive plan would touch not just the Jews, but every tribe and nation and tongue. And that's what we will see around the throne of God. Our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are suffering and we suffer with them. And such is the case throughout the whole world. Now, let's look ahead just a little bit to next week. If you will look at verse 22, and it won't be on the screen, but when, when he says, go for I will send you away to the Gentiles, okay, that was it. 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. That's next week. Boy, he got them riled up as soon as he said Gentiles. The rest of this book is going to just be carrying on this narrative. But the thing is, in Paul's story, he was once one of those people. He was the one saying, Stephen, away with him. Maybe even Jesus, crucify him. Paul was that guy, but God transformed him through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. Now, your story. You have a story. I have a story. It's very simple. There was a before Jesus time. There was an encounter with Jesus where we came to a point where we realized our sin. We placed our trust in him and our sins were forgiven. Our sins were washed away. And we have a now that you are a Christian part to your story. And that part is still being written. Just as God had a global mission for Saul, he has a global mission for you and me to spread this gospel, to, to preach it. 
Not all of us are preachers. Not all of us feel comfortable. I mean, I don't feel comfortable bringing up something, uh, you know, kind of out of the blue. It's kind of awkward, you know, and to talk about talk about Jesus Christ and the gospel, that's difficult. But you know what we can talk about? Our story. Nobody can argue with your story. One commentator said this, people may doubt your theology, but your own story of personal conversion is the heart of convincing testimony, especially when you back it up by godly living. If somebody knows the old you and knows the new you and there's a marked difference, that's a powerful story. Can't argue with it. You can say like the blind man, look, I don't know what happened, but once I was blind, now I can see. After Jesus healed him. So, tell your story. Now, I'll say one more thing about this. We live in an age where everybody's story, everybody's personal story becomes their personal truth. And you can tell your story to say anything that you want. But we need to be bound by, the, by God's story. The gospel defines our story. Our story doesn't define the gospel. If you, if you tell a personal story that's kind of out there and really weird and it doesn't even look like what we have in God's word, you're telling a different story. You're telling about your experience. But the gospel defines your story. So, tell your story. Tell it to one another. In your community groups, share your story. It's so encouraging to hear how God brings people to himself. But also tell your story to those who really need to hear it, who are not yet among the people of faith. Let's tell our story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the word of God and uh, what we can learn from it. I pray, Lord, that it will not go out void, but will accomplish its purpose as you have designed. Through your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.